Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today on the podcast, my conversation with Josh Davis, a guy you probably know better by his artist name, DJ Shadow. Since the 1990s, DJ Shadow has been digging in record crates and Salvation Army thrift stores all over the world to find buried treasure. And he's been turning that treasure into beats, and he's been crafting beats and tracks that incite crowds during these beautiful, visually evocative shows. If you're not as familiar with him, this is what he sounds like. Building steam with a grain of salt off Shadow's debut album, Introducing, back in 1993, or tracks like this one. Hey, you wanna hear a good joke? Nobody speak, nobody get choked. Sound a little bit more familiar? That's Run the Jewels. And DJ Shadow with Nobody Speak. Uh, that got Run the Jewels, their very first gold record. Shadow's collaborated with artists like Chemist, Nas, Q-Tip, De La Soul. He's influenced artists like Radiohead and Gorillaz. But now, decades after he began, DJ Shadow is releasing his eighth studio album. It's called Action Adventure, and it's a whole other chapter of his music. It sounds like this. Makes me want to put on a white blazer and roll the sleeves up. That is DJ Shadow and Ozone Scraper from his new record, Action Adventure. So why the new sound? How did a purchase on eBay help create this record? And are we listening incorrectly to instrumental music? Here's my conversation with DJ Shadow. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. So can we talk a little bit about sort of one of the ways that this record came together that I found really interesting? And it's all about this huge set of cassettes that you bought off of eBay for a Baltimore radio show in the in the 80s. I want to play the track that was inspired by it, but can you just talk a little bit about those things? Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, it was at the peak of COVID. I was sitting around. Um, I had, you know dropped off of a big huge tour that was supposed to take me through the entire year um was um probably experiencing a lot of the same emotions that other people were which was you know what's happening when is this going to end what does it mean and i didn't find myself really wanting to listen to a lot of music during that time because i'm the type of person that imprints the music i listen to on what i'm experiencing like a time and a place an emotional context and i was feeling so out of sorts that i really didn't want to you know ruin any good music by listening to it during that time 
but a friend saw a link or, you know, he, he happened to be perusing eBay and he saw this lot of tapes and he sent me an email and he goes, um, if anybody should, should check these out, it's you. Basically it was, uh, about 150, 200 tapes taped off the radio, um, almost 40 years ago from, yeah, a radio station that serviced like the DC Baltimore area. And the person who had owned the tapes clearly had an affection for them, but basically said what a lot of people say at a certain point, which is it's time to move them on. It's time to let somebody else enjoy them. And I think the opening bid was like $49.99. So I bid and I ended up winning for the minimum bid. I think I was the only person who bid. And when I got the tapes, um, I popped one in driving around. I have a little Walkman in my car um, hooked up to like a USB port and just immediately rediscovered some of the the joy of some of the music that I loved in that era because the mixes themselves were so lovingly crafted and there was so much energy and enthusiasm um, from the DJs who put it all together. I mean, they were doing these like bedroom edits and then scratching over the top of those edits and just throwing all this stuff into the mix. And very quickly, those tapes kind of became a bridge back to a little bit of unabashed nostalgia, which allowed me to kind of get back into listening to music and finding joy in music again. I'm happy you said joy because that's what was going through my mind. It sounds like what it was, it was able to do was to remind you of the joy both in listening to music because you were struggling with it during during the pandemic, but also the, I mean, I guess when you've been making records as long as you have, also maybe the joy in, in making music. Yeah, it's difficult to to set up what you know made this record possible without talking about what happened to the last one which was you know i made a double album it came out right at the end of 2019 mm. and then i never got to tour to support it because of what ended up happening with the pandemic so i was feeling just really hollowed out i didn't feel like i wanted to work for a long time um i couldn't really confront the idea of making a new record after what happened to the last one until pouring myself into these tapes and, and yeah, like um, being reminded of a time that just seemed a lot more simple. And um, I'm never the type to, you know, only lean on nostalgia. I think it's a little bit seductive and a little bit corrupting, but in this case, it, it provided, like I said, kind of a link to um, a relationship with music that allowed me to move forward. I want to play one of the tracks from your record that my understanding is is sort of related to those tapes. Take a listen to this. So that's off your that's off your new record. That's called "You Played Me." Tell me a little bit about what we're what we're hearing there. Um, yeah, it's a song that just existed as an instrumental, as all the other songs on my album. And what I like to do when I'm making music is occasionally just loop up, you know, maybe thirty seconds of a track or a minute of a track, and just drop the needle. Uh, on other records that I'm surrounded by because I, I've been 
um, kind of buying more than I could ever process for like 30, 40 years now. So I'm surrounded by all these records that, you know, maybe I bought them 15 years ago on a road trip or 25 years ago at a record fair, but I've never had the chance to drop the needle. And, and so I like to do that while I'm listening to my own music, because occasionally, um, as happened in the past with a song of mine called Six Days, where I found the vocals on a, on a record and it was complete serendipity. Um, it happened again with You Played Me, where I just happened to play a, a dance 12 inch from, I think, like 1984 or something like that from the L.A. area. And the acapella wasn't like a perfect fit, but I thought, huh, this is kind of interesting. Maybe I can, you know like rough this in and send it to my label as a reference of the type of vocal treatment I would like to find if in fact we do try to go out and get, you know, some contemporary talent on the record. But what ended up happening is I just kind of fell in love with it after a couple of weeks and I went, okay, no, this is it. This is what I want. Hopefully we can find the artist. Hopefully we can clear it. Hopefully I can get it just right to make it sit in the track the way I am hearing it in my head. And Fortunately, all those things happen. I bet the artist was so happy. I'm sure they, they hadn't thought about that track in a while. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. When you reach out to people after a really long time, You, I, I've experienced everything. I've experienced people that are uh, f- just absolutely thrilled and, and see it as a real compliment and a real opportunity, and, and they can't believe it's happening all the way to the other end of the spectrum where people just slam down the phone and you can't get them to respond (laughs) to emails or anything. So I try to be respectful of, you know, all the different experiences that people have had in the music biz, because it isn't, it isn't easy sometimes, certainly, especially in, in the older days. You were talking just then about, you know, all the records you've sort of acquired over the years and you have so much more than, you can never play, and it, it reminded me of this great scene in the documentary Scratch. It was in, in 2001, and you're in sort of your glee. You're in the basement of this record store in Sacramento, California. That's all this piles and piles of, of vinyl. Over here is where uh, I was digging, and there was a mummified bat under one of the records. That was nice. Watch your step here. You smell the gas. It smells like gas. I guess that's just the records. I honestly feel like the people that dig don't stop digging because it's a part of who we are. You know, seeing you there around all these records, I just, like I said, I've just never seen anyone as happy. You know, (laughs) there's just such joy to be surrounded by all these records. You're talking about all the records you bought over the years. When did you first figure out the joy of digging for records and record crates? Hmm. Well, I think... Growing up in the in the suburbs, not very close to a major city, and certainly not anywhere close to the epicenter of hip hop culture, being all the way on the East Coast in in New York and Philly and all these big cities that are thousands of miles from where I grew up. Um, initially, I experienced the glee of finding a record when, for example, um, at one point, like in I think eighty four or eighty five. I happened to be hanging out at a record store and and hearing somebody talking about a, an ordering catalog for a distributor that that they utilized. And I said something like, "Hey, do you think that that distributor list would have any rap records in it?" 
And the guy at the store was like, I don't know, here, have a look. And so I just kind of went through the, the, the catalog and found a few things that I, I absolutely knew were rap um, and ordered them right there on the spot. I asked how it worked and he said, well, you know, you, you will probably get the records in like six weeks and then I'm, and, and we'll set them aside for you. And I would just go there week after week after week. <laughs> Are they in yet? Are they in yet? And then one week I went to the shop and they were just out. <laughs> they didn't set them aside for me. They came in and they didn't bother holding them and they just put them out and thank goodness nobody had bought them. But in that moment, I was just absolutely just ecstatic because um, finding what I was searching for was such a chore in this time. I mean, the, first of all, rap music didn't really exist on the radio outside of a few specialty shows. Um, the mainstream music press despised it and refused to cover it. Um, and there was, of course, no internet and very few books, very few resources. So when I was able to get my hands on the music, it was this genuine just electricity. And I'm really grateful that I had to work so hard to find the music and to, to find scraps of the culture in whatever, you know, this magazine or this little article or um i remember discovering a magazine from the uk that that would be sent to the town i lived in at a newsstand and i would buy that and they would talk about things like breakbeats and samples and what was used on this track and so all of that really um just built this kind of i don't know fever where i'd go to record stores and then it's like oh what's the break that's used on that record it's in this list oh you know, here it is, and it's only $5. And it, I mean, in those days in the 80s, it was, there was really no competition in the area I lived in to find these kinds of records. So um, I kind of, I guess, didn't really understand the rarity until a little bit later, because a lot of the records that I was going out and finding or buying, whether it was a breakbeat like on her album, like The Skull Snaps or something like that i would literally go to the shop and like oh yeah here it is 3.99 okay cool <laughs> not knowing that it would be you know 20 years before i would find it again what was your strategy when you went into these places that had like a ton of old records honestly i think it's just like anything else you start looking for labels that seem to have been um you know kind of hip to contemporary music at that time and seem to have a good output of R&B stuff. So in other words, if you're into James Brown and you see that James Brown is on Polygram or Polydora, excuse me, at the time, um, you might be more inclined to look for or take a chance on other records that were on Polydora in the same era. Um, or you start to notice certain producer names or, or artist names or song titles that come up you know, funky this or funky that or or this dance craze or something. So I think it's just like anything else. It's trial and error. And it was the same when I first started buying hip hop records. It feels like it, the way you were laughing when I mentioned it to you, it feels like a very happy place for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I think for me and a couple of people that I'm really close to that occupy a similar space, the digging thing isn't something that we really like to jump up and down and and talk about or like, you know, go on Instagram and post like, oh, here's here's today's finds or anything like that. I think for us, uh, 
it's a really just a personal experience. Um, and that's how it always was for me, because as I said, in the early days, I didn't really have any peers that I could share information with or knowledge with. And even though that's changed and I'm much more open about, you know, my information and all that, it's still, to me, it's a, it's a personal space. And um, that's how I choose to interact with it. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with sampling now, um, a little bit later in the conversation. But I, I want to set up the stakes of before before we do that and talk a little bit about how things kind of started off for you. W- mm-hmm. What do you remember about releasing some of those like big early records in the nineties? Um, wow, I mean, it depends on the records. I mean, introducing. I was living in the UK when we were getting ready to set it up. I was living in London uh, because that's where my label was. And it was just really exciting. I mean, I was what, in 1996, I was about 24, 23, 24, um, living in a, in a, in a country outside of the States, um, was exciting and living in London was exciting. I mean, but we didn't really know what was coming and certainly introducing is the type of record that I think probably feels in retrospect, like this really big, massive release that was immediate and, and the, the response was immediate and, and like it was a big seller, but really it kind of wasn't any of that. I mean, it was a slow burn, even in the UK. Once the record came out, I was right back in my same, I moved back home, you know, to, to California in the same kind of not very glamorous apartment, you know, where I had been living. And nobody even knew that the record was out where I lived. And because indeed it, it wouldn't be out for a few months. That was common back then before the internet where, you know, I was essentially a foreign artist in my own country. So my record wasn't out yet back home. And I remember just kind of feeling like, gee, is that it? You know, like (laughs) it it seemed like it was kind of exciting and things were happening in the UK. But then I was right back in the same small town I grew up in and still didn't really have any money and still um, was wondering what was next. And it really took, I guess, about six months to a year to start to feel the impact of that record. For people who, um, I just want to give people context of what you were talking about when introducing Blows Up. Um, I understand the Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records gave it the a, a record for first completely sampled album, and Time Magazine ends up naming it one of the all-time 100 best albums uh, a decade after it came out. I mean, that's that's not nothing. No, totally. I mean, obviously, it was a huge gift, Um but I think it's just one of those kinds of records. I mean, um, I wouldn't be surprised if the first Velvet Underground record still wasn't platinum in America, you know what I mean? And that's not to compare me to a group like that. It's just to say that there's some records that come out that I think have significance beyond, you know, anything monetary or anything kind of like mainstream. It's more of a a, a record 
by artists and for artists um, to kind of move the continue the dialogue of music and push things forward. And that's always what I think I've tried to do. And and it seems to more or less work out that way. For someone who became so well known for sampling, and again, as I mentioned, Guinness World Records, you know, first completely sampled album. And I've talked to DJs on this show who will reference you in terms of the thing that found their love of sampling, you know, whether it be artists that we've had on this show like Buck 65 or, or, or Kid Koala. Um, but when I was doing research for this interview, even just this morning when I was looking at a couple of articles before I came in and when I was looking some, for some stuff around action adventure about the new record, one of the things I heard you talk about that I wanted to ask you about is that for someone who's known as this great sampler, this great, great digger, this great... Uh, guy who can find the smallest little part of a song and, and pastiche it all together. Your relationship with sampling has changed until now. Is that right? Yeah, totally. I think as I've uh, just matured and and tried to uh, teach myself more about different disciplines of ways of making music, um, I think at a certain point, inevitably, you just kind of come to the conclusion that sound is sound. And it's all there to be utilized. And I'll give you an example. Um, I think in the old days, of course, I was uh, I had what I felt like was a agenda to try to articulate that sampling was a legitimate way of making music. Mm. After a few albums, I felt like, okay, I think I've kind of done that and I've shown that. And I was no longer really interested in just you know, restricting myself to that discipline alone. Um, now, if I need a kick drum, for example, I have a, a whole palette of options in front of me. I can use a sampled kick drum. I can use a drum machine. I can go record a drummer or something like that. It really just depends on what the track calls for. And then, of course, you multiply that to should it be a guitar or a synth? Should it be a sample? Should, is, should I get a... So it, it really, I think, the more you know about music and sound, um, it's just kind of like... I, the only analogy, I guess, that makes sense to me is like if you grew up only limiting yourself to to painting with watercolors and then discovering acrylic paint and then discover discovering oil-based paint and then discovering using pins with the painting and, and adding. And the more you add, the more broad the opportunity is to express yourself artistically and not limit yourself to kind of an arbitrary set of tools. Yeah. And also when you take out, to use your analogy, when you take away the mission of, hey, watercolor painting is real painting. Hey, I know yeah. you people keep on telling me that watercolor painting, or in this case sampling, is not real, is not real painting. When you're able to take that away, you're able to make more authentic music to yourself. Absolutely, and it's a lifelong journey. My guest is the legendary artist and producer DJ Shadow. You're hearing a little of his song, You Played Me, right now. His new album, Action Adventure, is out now. So coming up on the show, DJ Shadow has a lot to say about how we listen to instrumental music, and he has some thoughts on 
perhaps the incorrect way we listen to hip-hop instrumentals. More to come with DJ Shadow after this. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Shadow, I just want to say something. L.A., I want to say something. That, do you realize what a f***ing legend this man is and what he did for music? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the renowned artist and producer, DJ Shadow. What you heard right there was... LP from the legendary hip-hop group Run the Jewels talking about how influential and how important DJ Shadow is to their music and to hip-hop in general. So, so far in our conversation, we spent some time talking about his early days, digging in crates, his album Introducing that slowly, in his words, brought him fame. But I wanted to talk about another important element of Shadow's career, and that's collaboration. And this part of the conversation ends with DJ Shadow saying something to me that I've never thought about before when it comes to listening to instrumental music. And I play instrumental music, so stick around for that. Here's more of our conversation. One of the other constants in your career throughout the whole way has been your respect for collaboration. And I want to play a clip for everybody right now that you posted on your Instagram last week. you just been on stage playing Nobody Speak with Run the Jewels. LP, one of the guys in the band, stops you before you leave the stage. He tells the crowd that you got Run the Jewels, their first gold record, and then he says this. Shadow, I just want to say something. LA, I want to say something. That, that, do you realize what a f***ing legend this man is and what he did for music? Straight up. And what he continues to do for music. Thank you. And we want to thank you for being our friend and our brother and getting down with us. You're a huge part of the Run the Jewels family. Thank you so much. Tell me about that moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a lovely moment, man. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I, I actually said to uh, my wife when I got home from that trip, I, I go, you know, there's very few times where you feel like you do something and you feel a true connection and you, you feel like, uh, I don't know, I, I'm the type that will always be second guessing my performance or wishing that some technical thing could have been resolved in a, in a, in a faster way or a more uh, efficient way, or I wish I had handled this better or done that better. Um, but yeah, that, that whole night, um, yeah, it was very kind of him to say, I mean, and knowing LP as well, I mean, he is not exactly, um, the type to sort of throw around praise, uh, insincerely. So, Considering that it was LP who said it and 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 what he said, it, it meant a lot to me for sure. To go to go back to this record, to Action Adventure, it feels um, very very personal, but also like very much like you. And yeah. um, what what's been the most satisfying part of that in making this record? To be honest, when I started working on it at the beginning of uh, 2022. Um, 
I didn't know that the record was going to be all instrumental, but as the the weeks and the months went on, I just started to feel like, well, yeah, okay, I could give this to so-and-so, or I could send this track or try to get a vocalist on this track. But somehow there was something inside that was just going, no, don't do that. Don't like this, this, this could be something new and different if you just hold on to it and force it to remain instrumental. And, you know, I, I, I have always prided myself on my instrumental music, not just sounding like a beat that's waiting for a rapper or a beat that's waiting for a vocalist. you're going to make instrumental music you have to craft the arrangement to hold people's attention it has to be and and honestly that's one of the things that i'm i'm so adamant about because when i hear a lot of me especially in the older days in the late 90s i would hear music that people would put out and uh peers would go oh yeah you should, you should check that out it's kind of like your stuff and i would listen to it and i would go no this isn't like my stuff this is simply an instrumental that nobody rapped on like where there's mm. all this space for a verse and then there's a chorus and then space for a verse and you can easily imagine somebody singing or rapping to it but to me the music that i make and have always tried to um prop up as being instrumental in nature it's different it's sort of like i mean if you listen to classical music or jazz music um which is commonly instrumental it doesn't sound like music where it's like, well, where's the vocal? Yeah, yeah. Where there's there's no there's no opera singer here on this. Oh, this yeah, is this right. is the orchestra without the soprano on it. Exactly. So, I mean, that's something that I feel like I I don't know if anybody really thinks about when they listen to my music in relation to other music, but I hope they eventually determine that it's one of the reasons that I think my music stands out. I, I loved getting the chance to talk to you a little bit about your music and, and, and the way you think about music. And it's made me think a lot about a lot of things, too. Uh, congratulations on the album and, and thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. What a pleasure to speak with Josh Davis, our DJ shadow artist, producer, and turntablist for the past 30 years. His new album, Action Adventure, is available to stream now. All right, that's it for the show today. The other conversation we put up today is one with the Kingston, Ontario rock band uh, Glorious Sons, who had this big song called Sawed Off Shotgun a couple of years ago, and it brought them from playing scuzzy, and I mean scuzzy, rock clubs in Canada to playing like massive venues all over the world. They're one of the biggest rock bands in Canada right now, or at least like in the top, top two or three. So... We talk a little bit about that, and if, if you hear some trepidation in my voice right now, I, I did a thing that I don't, it's not like a natural thing for me to do, but it, I was curious about it. So Brett Emmons, who is the lead singer of Gloria Sons, great songwriter, um, he was in a relationship, oh God, this feels so gossipy, but he was in a relationship with um, an artist named Jordan Miller, who's the lead singer of the Canadian rock band, The Beaches. The Beaches have had their own global number one hit song, and the song is called Blame Brett. Brett being Brett Emmons from The Glorious Sons. 
So how does that feel when a big hit song has your name in it and it's about you? I was happy Brett wanted to talk about it, so we did. Go, go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.